You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast. Number 189, COVID as a Catalyst for Positive Change by J.T. Kostman. Hi, this is Rod Murray. Welcome back. That was a clip from Concerto No. 4 in G Minor, The Winter Concerto by Vivaldi. As usual, I'll play the full song at the end of my podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I'm very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash Pulse Podcast to learn more. In the interest of full disclosure, my institution, the University of the Sciences, uses D2L Brightspace. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is Rods Pods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rodspulsepodcast.com. This special audio and video podcast is a recording of the keynote presentation by J.T. Kosman on COVID as a Catalyst for Positive Change. It was presented at the 2020 Padla eLearning 3.0 Conference. Padla is the Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey Distance Learning Association, or should I say the Digital Learning Association. I've been on the board of Padla for some time and want to give a shout out to our board members who made this conference possible. First is our executive director, Louis Struckoff, who does most of the real work behind Padla. Steve Hart is our president and is the one responsible for lassoing J.T. Kosman as our main speaker. I also want to give kudos to our program committee who did so much behind the scenes, Susan Darlington, Liz Nover, and especially Dr. Douglas Cook. As we said on our website, Join us for the provocative conversation with Dr. J.T. Kosman to gain insight into the four areas that will make all the difference for your organization and your career over the coming months and years. J.T. has an amazing background. He describes himself as a data scientist, mathematician, and psychologist. Dr. Kosman has been recognized as one of the world's leading experts in applied artificial intelligence and cognitive computing. He has hunted terrorists for the U.S. intelligence agencies, tracked criminal networks for the FBI, advised on analytic strategies for the Department of Defense, and led social media analysis for the 2012 Obama campaign. In his earlier life, he served as a paramedic, police officer, deep-sea rescue diver, and as a team leader with U.S. Army Special Forces. Wow. In his Padler presentation, he talks about helping our institutions to survive and thrive during this crisis. He uses storytelling very effectively to tell us how we can take action and not just sit by. So without further ado, here's a recording of Dr. J.T. Kosman's talk. This isn't a keynote. This is a call to action. You know, Lou had pointed out that we're living in these extraordinary times right now. And I think most of us are suffering that same sense of, of impotent rage, right? That that inability to actually do anything, to affect circumstance. And I want to be here today to share with you that that's simply not true. See, like many of you on the call, like probably all of you on the call, whatever my official title happens to be at the time, I define myself as a teacher, as an educator, as a guide, as someone who's there to help. 
and I think that's really, if I looked at the the sort of the common denominator of who everyone is who belongs to Padla, and that's why I was so attracted to the idea of joining you for this conversation for this session today, is because I am you, and I think I'm experiencing the same things you're experiencing, and I and I think I can commiserate a little bit, but I think I can also offer you a way that you can not just be on the sidelines and be watching what's going on. So that said, hopefully you've joined our conversation and, and the true spirit of distance learning will engage one another and, and we'll leave plenty of time open toward the end for chat. Uh, but what a weird time for us to be having this conversation. Normally when I open these sessions, I say, I'm so glad to be here. That would seem self-serving now because I'm home. Uh, like all of you are probably, most of you, certainly. And I'm in my jammies and bunny slippers. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually fully dressed. Uh, I'm not going to get up to prove it. You'll have to believe me. But it is an extraordinary time we're living through, whatever the case, right? Uh, I don't have to tell any of you what's going on. All you have to do is turn on the news or wake up. Uh, it's It's ever present. It's always there. It turns out some tiny little microbe that began somewhere around the world has infected most of the world, uh, a significant portion of the world's population. Uh, and in ways that we thought would be unimaginable, even just a couple of months ago, we have in the United States, as Lou mentioned, passed an auspicious and terrible mark. Yesterday, we've lost now 300,000 people to COVID. I, I need to say that again. 300,000 people. We all remember where we were on 9-11, uh, any of us who were old enough to. Do we remember where we were when we started losing that many people every day? That's the impact we're having. And not to minimize that horrific impact to human life in the very slightest, but the reverberations, the repercussions of that have been beyond even what has impacted us medically. Uh, we have seen uh, a shock to the economic system like nothing we've ever seen since the Great Depression. Uh, and that isn't hyperbole. You know, I uh, looked into these matters for years and I was looking at what the recessions and the uh, uh, various or borderline depressions have impacted our economy. We now have millions and millions and millions of people out of jobs. Some may never return. Hundreds of thousands of companies have closed. Many will never come back. And before we really get started in earnest, I want you to check in with all of you. And I wanted to ask you, answer this question for me, would you please? How has COVID impacted your organization? I, I wish we had time to talk about how it's impacted you personally. We unfortunately really don't. But I'd love you to vote in for me, please, and tell me how has COVID impacted the organization you're working with. So let me say, for most of organizations, it's been challenging and devastating. There are a couple who say that they've seen some silver light. Uh, there are a couple of you who have seen said it's actually been a positive impact on your organization. Uh, I almost feel guilty admitting it, but it certainly has to mine. It's been positive in my organization. Turned out it was a good time to run a company called Protected by AI that's committed to protecting people, property, places, and the profits of the organizations and entities we work with. But I'm increasingly seeing more and more organizations, more and more professionals who are being just 
blown away and devastated. And incidentally, if you're watching this session on a recording, you're playing our at-home version, I'd encourage you to answer these questions for yourself anyway. Keep a record of it, note them down, because this is going to be important as we have the conversation. But that said, you know, one of the things I'm struck by during this time and in, in, in response to your responses is this quote I've always liked from Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu said, in the midst of chaos, there is also opportunity. And that turns out to be absolutely quintessentially true. Uh, I, I think more contemporarily said by Churchill, Churchill once enjoined us to never let a good crisis go to waste. One of the big challenges organizations always have, and I think you'll all bear me out on this, is, well, I think the big challenge is inertia. The big challenge is not being able to get unstuck from who you are, not being able to change who you are as an entity, as a company. Crisis can serve as a catalyst for just that if we treat it right, if we do it right. And that's the good news. The bad news is, how does that happen? How does an organization evolve, change, move to that next place? How does it not become subject to those sort of Darwinian forces of simply becoming extinct? Well, it has to evolve. It has to grow. It has to change. The catalyst for that, and here's the bad news, is you, the people who are on this call right now. This is not going to happen spontaneously. It's not going to be uh, even a CEO who all of a sudden thinks differently about everything. It's going to be a consequence of being educated, having their hands held, learning a new way of thinking a new way of looking at the challenges they face. Those insights, those perspectives are facilitated, if not come directly from the very people on this call. So this is a call to action, as I say. This is, uh, in the immortal words of uh, Spider-Man's uncle, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. We have that responsibility now to what are we doing and how are we doing? So that was the good news, the bad news. Here's more good news. The good news is it turns out I've worked with organizations of every stripe for many years. Uh, Chris didn't uh, bother you with my background and I greatly appreciate that. But let me give you the highlights reel. I uh, currently, I'm the CEO of a company called Protected by AI, as I mentioned. Uh, prior to that, in the course of my rather weird career, I started out as a paramedic, a police officer, I worked as a deep sea rescue diver, and eventually I became team leader of a scout sniper reconnaissance team with the U.S. Army Special Forces. After I left the military, broken, bloodied, blown up, bandied about, uh, I went on to grad school where I earned uh, my first PhD in psychology. I got a second uh, in mathematics and have been working in data and data science and in artificial intelligence ever since. And that's uh, been for, uh, gosh, almost 30, 25, 30 years now, quite a while. Uh, I went to work for the Gallup organization where I was the research director. Uh, shortly after that, I got a call from the Beltway from an old boss of mine. And the long story short version is I was pressed back into service after 9-11 and I created most of the capabilities currently in use by US intelligence, defense and security agencies to help keep the world a safer place. After I left the Beltway, I became chief data scientist at Samsung. Then I was the chief data officer and a member of the executive committee at Time Inc. That's when I went into uh, sitting on boards, got a little bit bored and was pressed back in the service by my current partner, who's a former secret service 
agent uh, who uh, that's a whole nother story I'll be happy to tell you about, preferably over a scotch sometime. But we came back into business to be able to say, how do we help companies navigate these tumultuous times that they are in? That was pre-COVID. Once COVID came up, we saw this as a mandate, as a mission, as something we had to do. And what we saw was, it turned out, companies needed to focus on just four things. If they would get those four things right, they could not only survive, but thrive through COVID, through crises, through the tumultuous times that we're living in. And those are the things I want to take you through now and the role you can play in helping your organization, helping your company be able to survive, thrive, and move to that next place, hopefully. Use this crisis as a catalyst for positive change. Now, I should caution you, it's not as simple as these four things. You could think of these four things we'll talk about as existing in three dimensions, right? And the three dimensions, the three perspectives I speak to, and I'll speak to today, are from the lens of the macro, the meso, and the micro. At the macro level, think of that as sort of a telescope, a very large view. You could think of this as country, agency, citizen, right? The, the macro view is that overall looking view. The meso view is looking across and looking within, and the micro view is looking down in. And so we work very closely with uh, government, the government of South Africa, with several governments uh, around the world, uh, with the US government, and when we're talking to them about these three levels, we talk about the country, the agency or ministry, and the citizen. In companies, we talk about the company, the department, the individual. In departments, we can talk about the department, the team, the employee. You get the point, right? What we have to do is always be mindful of what I'm talking to you about today. We're really talking about these three perspectives, these three lenses that we'll be looking at. That said, that's the only complicated part of what I want to share with you, because what I the one qualification I didn't share with you that I think is the most important is uh, that I have is that I'm also a grandpa. I'm a dad and a grandpa. And as such, I love stories. I love telling stories. And so that's what we're going to do for the rest of the time we have together. I just want to tell you four stories, four quick stories. And the first one is about that first dimension, that first facet that you need to focus fixedly on. And that is talking about strategy. So let's talk about strategy. Here's my quick version of a story for you, which I love to tell the longer version, but time being what it is, let me tell you the very short version. And the short version begins in 1930 in France. In 1930 in France, uh, this was a, a particularly trying time. World War II had just wounded down about a dozen years ago. And we they had lost uh, nearly 2 million citizens, uh, 1.7 million uh, soldiers, I believe, and about three, three, 400,000, uh, 300,000, excuse me, civilians. Uh, this was devastating to them. And they lost them in the most brutal battles and bombings imaginable, trench warfare. It was, it was bloody. It was horrific. People came back maimed, destroyed. They lost a generation uh, to combating Germany. Well, here in 1930, all of a sudden, there were more rumblings across the Rhine. You have this mustachioed madman, former house painter and corporal, who is talking about world domination and talking about German might and German right. What are the French to do? And the French decide to make an investment, a heck of an investment. Uh, they invest 
as I understand it, a bit over 2 billion francs, which back in 1932, billion francs was still a lot of money. <laughs> this was a hefty sum. And they decided what they were going to do is they were going to stop Germany. They were going to build a wall. And they did. They built a fortification. You'll see that, that thick red line across the entirety of the German border from beginning to end. They built this line and they said, this will hold. This will stop the same sort of assault, the same sort of trench warfare, the same sort of invasionary games that they played the last time. We will be able to hold Mr. Hitler at bay. What did German, and the line they called, and some of you will remember the name, Ligne Maginot, the Maginot line. The Maginot line was constructed uh, at, at a considerable cost, a considerable effort to stop Germans, Germany's army. And what did Germany do? Most of you know the rest of the story. Germany went around it. Germany went through Belgium, attacked France, and took Paris in days. Why am I telling you this story, and what's the moral to the story? The moral to the story is the, the consensus among military historians, generals, scholars, is the problem France faced was France was still fighting the last war. France hadn't anticipated Blitzkrieg. They hadn't anticipated the technology. They hadn't anticipated the strategy, the perspective that Germany would bring to bear. They hadn't considered what their enemy was capable of. And so the question I have for you is just that. In your organization, are you fighting the last war? Are you? Are you still trying to contend with COVID and the economic crisis and everything that's battering us using the same thinking we used when we got into this circumstance in the first place? Are you and your organization currently tapping into the wisdom of the crowd, the wisdom of your own organization? You know, we have a couple of rules we run my companies by. We've run every organization I've ever led by. Uh, one of the first rules is no one is as smart as everyone. The brains don't reside in the corner office. The brains should be, if not evenly distributed, very largely distributed throughout the organization. I've always hated that phrase, great minds think alike. That is ridiculous. It's preposterous. It's one of the primary reasons we need diversity, aside from the fact that it's simply fundamentally fair to have a more diverse workforce. It's because of cognitive diversity, because people with different backgrounds, with different perspectives, think very alike. The death knell for me, for a candidate or for an applicant, is for them to say to me, oh, we think exactly alike. I think just like you. Well, why do I need you? I already know how I think. I want someone who thinks differently than I do. But what about you in your organization? Are you taking advantage of that? Are you tapping into that? Let's do another question here. And let me ask you, has your organization tapped into the wisdom of crowds to reinvent your strategy? Have you asked the people who are the rank and file on the front lines, the soldiers who are slugging it out, have you given thought to other ways we could succeed, other ways we could do better? Other ways we could do what we've been doing before or do something completely differently. Let me give you my favorite example of this contemporarily. I was just in a conversation a couple of months ago now, I guess it was about three months ago. I went and we got dinner from the diner that's by my house. I live in New Jersey, so we eat at diners. And I was talking to the guy who runs the diner. It's one of the 
most popular diners in New Jersey. Always, uh, Guy Fieri's been there. It's very highly rated. It's terrific. And I love the guy who run the family who runs it. And I asked him, so how's business? He said, oh, it's, it's horrible. Business has been horrible. Nobody, nobody eats here. And I said, really? You know, do you think people are like not eating? And he said, well, no, of course people are eating. People are just eating at home. And I said, you know, I eat at home. Uh, I still hate cooking. And so I have Blue Apron and Ready Fresh and, and several of those other services that bring that to my home. He said, yeah, I know they're kicking our butts too. So I said, well, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you offering 10 choices of meal and we'll bring it to your house? 10 different ones on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, 10 different meals. So do you want the fish? Do you want a vegetarian? Do you want the beef? Whatever you want. Five meals, whatever else it is. A fundamentally different way of doing business. What kills me about that is you know his wait staff and his cooks were thinking the same thing. Tap into them, figure it out, get those additional insights. Are we doing that? Most of us not as effectively as we could. In fact, no one has responded to this question that they strongly agree that their organization is doing that. Let's value our people. Let's value their perspective. Let's value the fact that they know what they're doing because they're doing it. The next question I have for you is, are the people in your organization rowing and going in the same direction? We all know, let's talk about the pre-COVID days, we always had that guy in the office, and it's usually a guy, who walks around with papers all day, and we have no idea what he does. Uh, the general agreement is, it doesn't really do anything, he walks with papers all day. Is that true in your organization? Do you have infighting still? Do you have people who are battling one another in this turf wars and this nonsense of not knowing that they have to coordinate and they have to pull together, they have to row and they have to pull together to be able to win? I mentioned I'm former special forces. Let me tell you something. Not everyone on the team always got along every day. But when we were on mission, when we were in the field, no question. One of the first things I do in all organizations, whenever I'm working with them, is I ask them to take action. And by action, I mean an assessment that I tend to give in organizations that assesses them on a number of dimensions. I ask, are they aligned? Do they have the capabilities they need to succeed? Is there trust inherently? Are they an innovative culture? Are they one that promotes innovation and, and actually rewards it? Are there opportunities for the people individually and for them to succeed that they may or may not be realizing? And what is the network effect? How are they working synergistically to create what is known as a gestalt, where one plus one equals more than the sum? One plus one isn't two, it's 42, which, by the way, is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. So let me ask you in your organization, are your team members all rowing and going in the same direction? And for those of you who disagree or strongly disagree, how disturbing is that, right? Can you imagine when I was, never mind special forces, when I was a paramedic, when, where, when I worked for the U.S. intelligence community, if we spent all that energy battling one another, instead of battling the forces that came to bear, we need to put our energy in that direction. And we need to do that mindful of the fact that we're not always going to be right. We're going to make mistakes. And you know what? We need to not only embrace that, we need to welcome it. There was a, a, a television show, a, a cartoon that my kids used to watch when they were very little that I loved. I can't believe they don't have it on in reruns. 
It was my favorite one of the cartoons. Yes, of course, I watched the cartoons with them. And it was an excuse to tell them, why don't you go watch cartoons? Because I know today it's three o'clock and my favorite cartoons on. And we would get, I, I, I was wishing the grandchildren could still watch it, but my favorite cartoon was always this one, The Magic School Bus. How many of you have seen The Magic School Bus? It was awesome. The Magic School Bus was Miss Frizzle. And Miss Frizzle, what was her motto? I wish you could all chime in now because most of you will remember it was take chances, make mistakes, get messy. I put that up on the wall in all of my offices. That's what I want you to do. I want you to take chances, make mistakes, get messy. That's okay. We need to screw up once in a while. We need to constructively make mistakes. In fact, one of the brainstorming sessions I used to have with my team on at least a monthly, excuse me, at least a quarterly, preferably a monthly basis was let's try to come up with terrible ideas. It was a bunch of fun. And you know how many great ideas spun out of those terrible ideas? You wouldn't even believe. Take chances, make mistakes, get messy. What about in your organization? Do you reward entrepreneurial successes and failures? Everybody's happy for the successes. Sure. Do you celebrate the failures? Do you celebrate the people who come in and tell you, boss, I have a terrible idea. Here it is. And let's talk it through. Let's see if we can make hay out of it and we can do something with it. Something to think about and annual role as educator, as helper, as informer, to be able to facilitate that sort of a dialogue, that sort of a conversation. This is a very direct and active role you can play to give people a way to understand that there are alternative ways of thinking about things. So that was the first leg. We were talking about strategy. Let's move on to the second. And the second, we're going to talk about the second thing you must focus on, the human capital. Here's my quick story on this. Anyone who served in uniform will already know this story, so forgive me for the redundancy. But if you've served in uniform, you never tire of hearing this story, because this is the story of how the city of Sparta saved the world. And that's no understatement. Uh, at the time, this is a little over three and a half thousand years ago, Xerxes, the king of Persia, son of Darius, Darius had lost a major battle to Greece at Marathon, and he wanted revenge. Uh, and so he realized the revenge through his son Xerxes, decided he was going to take over literally the world. The king of Persia mounts an army of one million soldiers, one million soldiers, and decides he's going to march on and take over the entire Hellenic region, all of Greece, what we know today as, as the Greek states. Now, Greek was the home of this fledgling concept known as democracy that had never appeared anywhere on earth before and existed only in this one little crucible, this one little place. Well, Xerxes decided that he and the Persian army would decimate it. And so he marches these soldiers, one million people, and the people of Athens, which is the centermost city in Greece, decide they need to be able to mount a defensive, they need to be able to repel this attack. They have one of the great navies in the history of the world, but they need the time to be able to coordinate this. And so what do they do? They reach out to the city-state of Sparta. Sparta, under the leadership of one of their two kings, marches a contingency of 300 people, 300 soldiers, 300 men, to a little mountain pass called Thermopylae, in English, the Gates of Fire. At Thermopylae, Leonidas and his men, 300 men, 
hold off an entire army of one million men. By most uh, reckonings and accounts historically, they kill 60,000 of their attackers. And more importantly, they hold that mountain pass for long enough to Athens to coordinate a defense, which it does, and in the process saves democracy. So why am I telling you this story? In fighting the last war, are you fighting the old way? You know, most organizations are formed on a structure that resembles what they think the military, the United States military in particular, looks like. This was first proposed by Alfred Sloan back in the 20s and 30s and evolved by Sloan into the 40s at General Motors. And it turns out that the idea was to have this hierarchy, to have a general at the top and officers and then uh, lower level officers and sergeants and all the way down to the rank and file. It's become so ubiquitous. We think that's how organizations need to be. The irony here is that's not how modern militaries are structured. You'll always hear in the press about special forces soldiers being sent in. What about in your organization? Instead of just throwing a bunch of bodies, are you saying to yourself, how do we take the best and the most capable and how do we better enable them to be able to succeed, to be able to thrive? Are you finding the right people in the first place? You know, not to dwell on the military, but I had an old drill sergeant who used to be fond of saying, when you were talking about who to pick for the teams and who to put in these groups, his saying was, You can't make chicken salad out of chicken. Well, he was a drill sergeant. Of course, this is the same guy who used to tell you, uh, you should never try to teach a pig to sing because it wastes your time and it annoys the pig. But I'll tell you, what really makes the special forces teams extraordinary is not that the people hired into them are have an S on their chest or super abilities or any of that nonsense. They simply are selected to be able to coordinate and work well together, to work synchronously as one unit, and they train, 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 train. So let me ask you, have you recently gone back into your organization in light and wake of the crises that are in front of you? And have you re-examined fundamentally your talent requirements from who you should pick to how you should train to what should be done to how you enable them to be able to succeed in your organization in this new mission? But let me tell you, that has become one of the leap motifs of my life. Uh, in special forces, we have a set of what are called truths and imperatives that we live by. The first among them is this. Humans are more important than hardware. We have to focus on our people. We have to be able to give them what they need to succeed, whether that's the training, the capabilities, whatever it is in your organization, and so I'll ask you again in a slightly different way, are you training strategically for the new normal? Are you taking, is your organization, excuse me, giving you the capability to take ownership, to be able to give people what they need to succeed in this new terrain, in this new environment, in these new capabilities? And if not, how can you possibly succeed? How can they possibly succeed? That's the second of the stories. The third has to do, excuse me, the third strategy or the third leg of our table, I guess. The third thing you need, we need to focus on then. Uh, excuse me, that was the second. The third thing we need to focus on, insights. We need to know what we need to know to be able to know if we know it, right? We need to have the information to be able to succeed. 
We have to know where we are and where we're going. We have to have metrics. We have to have measurement. We have to be able to operate and to lead with our eyes wide open. My favorite story about this comes from my favorite place, one of my favorite places on earth, frankly. Uh, if anyone recognizes it, this is Bletchley Park, uh, uh, a couple of miles outside of London. It is the home, or was the home during World War II of an extraordinary team of individuals, uh, geniuses, lunatics, code breakers, crossword puzzle enthusiasts, uh, mathematicians, uh, a bunch of nuts who were largely under the supervision of this fella. Uh, well, actually not this fella. This is uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who played the role of one of my heroes, Alan Turing. Alan Turing, and if you haven't seen the movie, by the way, uh, this is uh, the poster from the movie, The Imitation Game. Highly recommend it. Uh, it was a wonderful movie. It was actually historically fairly accurate. And it talked about how Turing and this bizarre team essentially cracked the Enigma code. And with it, really did save the world, really turned the tide of the war. He was able to gain insight into what the enemy was doing even before they did it. And he was able to use that information to be able to better guide, better educate, better help his country, help the allies, help the world fight the Nazi invasion. What about you? In your organization, have you cracked the code? Have you deciphered what it is you need to know to be able to succeed? We all know Bacon was right. Knowledge is power. Einstein was right when he said we cannot solve the problems we face with the thinking we use to create them. We need to think differently, but we need to have numbers. We need to know how successful we are in our endeavors. We need to know where we are along the path. We need to have what are called key performance indicators. We need to be able to measure every aspect always of our organization. When we talked earlier about alignment, when we talked about those capabilities, when we talked about the strategy, when we talked about the human capital, are those coalescing, are they converging toward our end, toward our goals? How do you know if you're not measuring it? And so I ask you, do you have KPIs for every role in your organization? Do you know and does everyone know what they should be doing every day and how what they're doing contributes? Do you have those KPIs in your company, in your organization? And if not, I'm curious, isn't this like driving a car blindfolded? Isn't this literally not even just not being able to see the gauges and the dials and the speedometer and, 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 and where you are on the road? You're driving blind. How do you expect to be able to be successful? Even pilots, they fly undercover. They have access to their instruments. You need the same. And you need them not just to have the insights, but because I'm the only shrink I know who isn't fond of quoting Freud, but Freud once said, insight without application is like giving a starving person a menu. And so what you have to ask yourself is, does leadership have all the insights they need to guide action every day? Do they wake up in the morning and be able to see on their smartphone, on their tablet, this is where we are, this is where we're going, this is how they're contributing, and almost more importantly, this is what's in their way, and this is how I can help them get those things out of their way so that we can be more successful. Does your leadership have that? And if they don't, why not? They have to have that if you want to be able to succeed. 
The final leg, the fourth, that I want to talk to you about today is the role of technology. And the story I'll tell you is one that um, actually appeared in a book uh, just recently by Malcolm Gladwell that was titled David and Goliath. And, and I actually read this in another book uh, a couple of years ago you might be familiar with. Uh, the story of David and Goliath, and, and this story has been told and retold so many times, and it is fundamental in most of the world's religions, actually. Uh, it, the story appears in the Quran as well as it appears in the Bible. And it, it's apocryphal, right? What do we talk about? How David, this young uh, man, beat Goliath, right? And he beat him with a slingshot. He threw a rock and bat, knocked him in the head and went. Well, here's what we don't talk about in that story. Have you ever tried using one of those slingshots? I actually, I have one right here. Truly, this is a reproduction of what we expect David's slingshot looked like. And you put a rock in this thing and you whip it around your head or whip it around the side and you fling it. Well, a good slinger, somebody who knows how to use that thing, can hit a target the size of a silver dollar, hit someone in the forehead at 200 yards. That's two football fields. Or if you're in the in England right now, that's two football fields. Same thing. Um, Imagine that kind of skill, that kind of capability. We tend to focus on the slingshot and think it's about the slingshot. It ain't about the slingshot, right? And it's not about the slinger either. Because when I was in special forces, we used to say, you know what a sniper is without a rifle? A guy. Do you know what a rifle is without a sniper? A stick, right? You have to put them together and integrate them into a system. And so the question I have for you in your organization is are you arming people with slingshots and the ability to use them? Do your people have the slingshots they need to fight the Goliathan forces they face? We can't do this alone and unarmed anymore. We can't just go toe to toe. We can't win with brute force. We need to have the technological capabilities to be able to be successful. And this is not just as a consequence of COVID. You've seen the news, you've watched the press. This has been something we've been talking about for a couple of years now. There was a study put out at Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford just a couple of years ago that predicted that 47% of jobs are at risk of automation. 47% of jobs, nearly half of all jobs in the US and around the world. Forrester Research similarly predicted just a couple of years ago, which has turned out to be presciently true, that businesses adopting these tools, AI and big data, are going to take $1.2 trillion from their less informed peers by the end of this year. That is nearly the equivalent of the GDP of Australia shifting from all of us to those fortunate few in the Fortune 50, like the companies I used to run, that have those capabilities. How do you keep up? We're talking about seeing the biggest global economic shifts in history. And the impact we're seeing to individuals is just as brutal, if not more so. You know, no lesser light than Warren Buffett has come out that and has said, in the future, you're going to see a company that's run by a machine, a man, and a dog. The man's job will be to feed the dog, and the dog's job will keep the man away from the machine. We're going to see machines running our companies. No lesser light than Google CEO Sundar Pichai has said, Artificial intelligence is the most important thing humanity is working on. 
it is more precious than electricity or fire. Now, if that doesn't scare you economically, consider this. In a recent address to school children all across the country, Donald Trump, sorry, Vladimir Putin, I get them mixed up. Vladimir Putin said, and I'm quoting here, artificial intelligence is the future, not only for Russia, but for all humankind. It comes with colossal opportunities, but also threats that are difficult to predict. Whoever becomes the leader in this sphere will become the ruler of the world. Now, I don't know if he means militarily or economically, but I do know he's right. And so what's the solution? How do we solve for this? We don't solve for this by fighting the machine. We fight with this by partnering with the machine, by working integratively, by being able to create teams, create organizations where we are able to partner with technology. We create what I've come to refer to as symbiotech systems. Those systems that address and bridge technology and psychology that focus not so much on AI as IA, not so much artificial intelligence as intelligence augmentation. We use these tools as what they are, tools to be able to augment human capability, to be able to alleviate people of the responsibility of being reduced to being, I'm sorry, but meet robots. That's what we see in most organizations for most of us, most of our time. How much of your time Every day, do you spend on tasks that could be better done by a machine? How many of the people who work with you, how many of the people in your organization should we just be replacing with a machine the same way we replaced people with plows, with horses, with tractors? How many times in our history have we said we can take the the messy, the mundane, the dangerous, the disgusting jobs, we can give those to machines. And in doing so, we can leave the real work for human beings. You know, this really came home for me a couple of years ago. Uh, my wife uh, is uh, my wife is a saint, truly, uh, and absolutely my hero. Uh, my wife has been an ICU nurse for uh, wait for it, she'll kill me when I say this out loud. Forty years, she's been an ICU nurse, bedside care. Forty years, she was about to retire just pre-COVID, and she couldn't because she felt like there was a call and she was needed. She had to go and she had to stay. Just before this happened, sorry, I get a little choked up when I think about it. Um, Just before this happened, uh, my wife participated in a march on Washington. They were, uh, it it wasn't the women's march she attended that also, but another march where they were taught, it was just nurses and they were were railing for better care for their patients. Not not more money for them, not more opportunity, not to be better care of. They took their time off from our home in New Jersey, she and a bunch of her nurse friends drove down tens of thousands of nurses from across the country to march on Washington to say they needed to give a higher nurse to patient ratio because it was directly commensurate with morbidity, mortality, nosocomial infections, the cubic ulcers. They got better care. And so they needed more nurses to work harder, she was saying. And it, it just blew my mind. And so I ended up writing an article as more of an homage to her than anything else that I I posted on LinkedIn. I'd encourage you to read it if you get a chance. I titled it, Robots Will Never Take This Job. And I made the point that most of what my wife does eventually will be able to be roboticized. Maybe as much as 80%, maybe even 90% of what she does. But you know what? That's okay. Because my wife doesn't bring value by changing your sheets or your bedpan. My wife happens to be an ICU critical care registered nurse who teaches physicians in addition to a regular job. 
But what she brings to the work, what she really brings, what's of real value, can never be replaced by robots. Robots will never be capable of judgment, humanity, curiosity, caring, wisdom, perspective, compassion, those things that make her uniquely human. Isn't that true for you also? Isn't that true for every aspect of your organization? Are the people who you are in your organization, the people who populate your companies, your agencies, your departments, are those people there just because they are convenient meat machines and they're cheaper than robots? Of course not. So what is it they bring and what can you divest them of so they can do more of what they uniquely do? How do you take this notion of robotic process automation, tie it with artificial intelligence and actually intelligently augment those capabilities? How do you turn them into that? And so I'll ask you, in your organization, are your roles optimized to ensure your people aren't simply serving as meat robots? Are they doing what only humans uniquely are capable of doing? I don't know that you even have to respond to that, but I would ask you to really cogitate on it and think about it for a while. When I look across at my peers, at my friends, at the people I spend my time with, are we giving them the respect of treating them like people? Are we giving to them those things that are uniquely human to do? I don't know. I don't know that it happens often enough. That said, that's really all I wanted to talk to you about. Well, I want to talk to you about a lot more today, but we don't have time. And so in conclusion, I'm going to tell you, to survive and thrive in the post-COVID economy, all you need to do is know those four things. You need to know your strategy, your human capital, your insights, and your technology. You just need to know your SHI technology being the catalyst that really gives you an advantage. That's all I have. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoyed this recording. Don't forget to stay tuned for the Vivaldi Winter Concerto. Until next time, have a great week.
that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of the University of the Sciences or any other institution or company.